0: This is essential. 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 This is essential audio. Welcome to the Money Pot, our podcast at Money 2020. I'm Sanjib Khalida, editor in chief at Money 2020, and here with me today is Rachel Morrissey, a content producer for Money 2020 USA. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Sanj. So today we're going to talk about who should own or have access to data to innovate.
1: Yeah. But, Sanj, I have a question. We've heard that data is proverbially the new oil. Do you think that's true?
0: Well, if you've been following the oil markets over the past few months, since people haven't been traveling, the demand for oil has plummeted, and the price for a barrel of oil was minus $37. So I'd say that definitely data is more valuable than oil, and data is the new oil.
1: And data is the new fuel for innovation. Last week, we did an episode with Pramad Varma, and we spoke about how India was data rich because so many citizens were using the internet and creating data. And that data is a raw material to feed and guide innovation.
0: And whoever controls that data would definitely determine the course of innovation.
1: Yeah. So I spoke to Greg Kidd about the fact that we may need to use litigation to open up the control of that data and allow entrepreneurs to develop with it. And Greg Kidd has one of those to-die-for Silicon Valley resumes. He was a senior analyst in the payments group, Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, and the director of Promontory Financial. He was an early investor advisor for Twitter, Square, Coinbase, and Marquetta, He was the chief risk officer for Ripple and the co-founder and CEO of Global ID and Hard Yaka Ventures. And in New Zealand, Hard Yaka means hard work. Frankly, Greg doesn't seem to rest much.
0: Yeah, and he's plugging away at the core issues of digitizing the financial system, identity, access, money movement, and funding innovation.
1: So he approached us with this issue that I hadn't really considered. As big tech moves into the finsurf space, are they allowed to monopolize their data? And if they can't legally monopolize, can they use their resources to sue fintech companies and thus create virtual monopolies?
0: Yeah, right now, there are several cases moving through the courts about who should have access to data, how it can be used, and what there is to protect it. And right now, the big tech companies, also called FAAAM, Facebook, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, and Microsoft are suing or being sued about the different uses of data. Also, they want to be seen as being careful, particularly after the Cambridge Analytica scandal.
1: Right. So he talked to me about two specific class action suits that highlighted the battles going on around public data and private. And both cases hang on a fundamental question.
2: The question is, with our litigation, is, is to basically get back and ask the question is who owns a user's data? Does does Facebook, Microsoft, slash LinkedIn, a bank, do they own the data because it sits on their servers? Or are they just having a right of access to the data and, and that the data still belongs to the user? Does a user's data belong to the user? Um, and does the user have to ask permission to the platform, to to, to access and use their data how they want to.
0: But it is trickier than that, because in these cases, the users he's talking about may not understand that their data is being used.
1: Yeah. And that case is about public data on the internet, stuff that users make public for anyone. Can that be withheld from data scraping?
0: And the private data case is around whether users can grant permission for an app to use data on a platform, even if that platform doesn't necessarily want you to do so. And that can mean these big companies chill innovation through frivolous lawsuits meant to delay or co-opt competitors.
1: In a nutshell, yeah. And both involve the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which was first passed in 1986 and last updated in 2008
2: it was a reaction to the film with Matthew Broderick on like war games when he like <laughs> hacked into the, and like played a game and it was like the real thing. And then that led to fear, well, Jesus, that, that could actually happen. And so they passed this legislation that went from being for like protecting the nuclear facilities to protecting like high risk facilities, like, like financial ledgers. And then is now muddled down to like protecting every piece of data on every computer in the world, because it, there's five key words, information on a protected computer and the interpretation has been that every computer is a protected computer and that means all information is covered by this concept of access and and who gets to determine access and if access is just determined in a, a terms of a, a terms of use those you know huge documents we all never read i mean the party that writes those could put anything in there and anytime you're violating the technical letter of everything in that terms of use then your access could be considered unauthorized and that's a potential felony offense and so uh that very narrow use of protecting like military facilities and um and financial ledgers has grown to like every single piece of information potentially on the internet
0: Yep. They updated it in 2008, and it is generally considered an anti-hacking law. It isn't doing a particularly good job of keeping up with all the stuff that has happened in the last 12 years. The National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers has written that, and I quote, the CFAA prohibits intentionally accessing a computer without authorization, but has failed to define what without authorization means, end quote.
1: Yes. And most of the social media changes have been in the 12 years since this was passed. I mean, the first iPhone was released in June of 2007. The law was updated a year later. I'm not sure I can even remember how much has changed about the internet and computers in the last 12 years.
0: <laughs> and besides criminal prosecution, the CFAA has been used by a lot of companies to stop data sharing and data scraping.
2: There's two, two principles in which... Major tech companies have invoked the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is a basically an anti-hacking statute. One is over access to public data, and so the question is: Can LinkedIn slash Microsoft sue you under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act for accessing publicly available data when they don't want you to? Even if it's publicly available to everyone else, can they single you out, tell you you can't access it, and if you do and go around? whatever protections they have or speed bumps they put in place, can they invoke the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to go
0: after you?
1: So before we go on, I have to admit, data scraping makes me a little squeamish. A lot of innovative services have scraped data to get the basics of their product right and continue to do it to make decisions. And individual data is worth only so much, whereas mass data is worth billions, I get squeamish because if data belongs to a person, then should it be used without their permission? I mean, I asked Greg, is data scraping really important to innovation? And he made the case for standardized APIs, which would create a lot of transparency around financial services.
2: Well, well standardization would ideally be, if, if you don't like scraping, which is, and, and I as like the world's biggest scraper, I don't like scraping. I only do it because there aren't, clear API calls. So if you made a rule that said, look, if you're going to like the, the, the banks could do it themselves or they could do it with a regulator, they could say, look, these are the like five standard API calls you need to have. Like you need to have a way that you ask for like um, the, the PII details that the user used to set up their account. And you could come up with standardization just like fannie and freddie have done that for mortgages right like these are the standard items that you need to have your mortgage included in a bundle and so and you do that for like this is the standard information you need to initiate an ach request or a wire transfer request it's all things that are are sort of semi-standardized already but they're not done so in an api way that a third party could use them right now for access to the payment system in the united states You have to be a bank. There's no way for a non-bank, for instance, to initiate um, a payment request through ACH or initiate a wire transfer. If you were going to open that up to the outside party, you just would come up with standard calls.
1: So we need data sharing at a minimum. And right now, that means data scraping.
0: Yeah, but that seems awfully severe and uncontrolled to me. It's a bit like when doctors use leeches to bleed patients in the Middle Ages, Sometimes it helps, but at other times there were unintended consequences, which in this case often meant death. While we're not talking about life or death here, the stakes are still really high. So the first case is LinkedIn versus HiQ Labs. HiQ Labs is a data science company for HR. It is considered a talent management platform focused on people analytics and data science machine learning. They want to use people's data to keep them happy at work.
1: HiQ Labs was data scraping the publicly available data on LinkedIn. LinkedIn sent a cease and desist letter claiming that HiQ and their bots didn't have permission to access and scrape LinkedIn servers. HiQ sued LinkedIn in a declaratory judgment action asserting various state law claims. LinkedIn has counter-argued that HiQ Labs violated the CFAA and...
2: LinkedIn lost. They claimed they were protecting the privacy of the users. Now, which is an odd concept, because in LinkedIn, you have both a public profile and a private profile. So to claim that you're protecting a, a user's privacy rights, when they've chosen to make a portion of their resume public, you know, I mean, the courts, the lower courts, said that's a ridiculous argument. This This is the very data that people made public, not private, and that you're claiming that you're doing something to protect their privacy rights, that that just doesn't make any sense. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've heard that argument before is cutting off public access is somehow, you know, protecting people's privacy rights. But I, you gotta remember, I come from Twitter and when people tweet something, it's very strange to talk about a privacy right because if you understand Twitter at all, when you tweet it and put it out there, it's public. And so it, it doesn't really make sense from my point of view to argue that there's a, you know, there's a privacy right to something you put in the public, public domain.
1: Yeah, they took it to the Ninth Circuit and the court affirmed that the data was publicly shared. So it basically couldn't be hacked
0: Right now, LinkedIn is appealing to the Supreme Court, but the court hasn't agreed to hear it yet. And other cases are being considered around the country that might turn out differently, which would make it more of a priority.
1: But for now, public data is public, and you can gather it for your business and use it. Try not to be evil. The next case is around Facebook.
2: The Facebook case is is over private data.
1: In 2010... Facebook was beating out MySpace and Friendster to become the premier social media platform with tremendous amounts of data. And Facebook has a history of snuffing out potential competition by either buying them or making their access difficult. In 2012, Facebook bought out Instagram a month before their IPO.
0: But the real gem they bought was WhatsApp in 2014. WhatsApp was dominating the text messaging space and killing Facebook Messenger, as well as every other messaging service and WhatsApp is where Facebook is pushing their wallet. They tracked the apps that were potential rivals by encouraging lots of apps to get on their API, and they watched them.
2: They encouraged a bunch of people to get on their APIs. Um, Then they figured out, they tracked who was on which apps. They figured out which ones were a threat to Facebook. They decided which ones were not a threat. They decided who to shut down, who to acquire, and 40,000 websites lost their access.
1: And while the websites were using the data on Facebook, Facebook was also collecting the data on them.
0: So what's the case?
1: So the case involves a number of companies, but the big one is Lendo USA versus Facebook. Lendo offers credit using non-traditional data like the user's data on Facebook. And they are asserting that Facebook's users gave them permission to use the data, not Facebook proper. And that Facebook can't stop them from accessing the data because it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to the user. They are also accusing them of removing their access because Lenda was in a space that Facebook might get into. Facebook is arguing that it is protecting data privacy and that they can change the terms of use to their API however they see fit.
2: When it's private data, which you obviously can't go after with the user's permission, but is it possible if the user gives you permission and Facebook? doesn't want you to access the data, even though the user has given you the permission and you go after that data and they still tell you they don't like you doing it and you continue to do it because the user's actually given you the credentials to do it, can they also sue you under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? Both these cases, they're claiming a violation of their terms of use and that when you go around that use, your access is prohibited, you're still accessing the data and so they're considering that a hacking violation even though you either didn't need the credentials or you have the credentials with the permission of the user. Um, in both those cases, we'd like to see whether that's a, that method of, uh, of blocking access is, is legal and enforceable.
0: So the Facebook case is about who owns the data, but that has immense implications about future access, w- whether it will be pay to play or if tech monopolies are real and allowed. And litigation can have a seriously chilling effect on innovation. In many cases, simply bringing a suit is expensive and can eat up a competitor's resources. Yeah.
1: So litigation is both necessary and problematic. But all of these cases point to the bigger issue of data ownership. Greg is a huge proponent of everyone having the right to a secure, trusted, and private identity. And he thinks that the open competition will do more to spur competition and advancement in the U.S.
2: So there's not a concept which which we're pushing, which is what we call self-sovereign identity, where the customer like owns their information, they own these accounts, they let a bank service it, or they let a big tech company service them. In the old days, when you change phone companies, you lost your phone number because the phone companies own the phone number you know, big radical innovation. Well, why don't people own their phone numbers and they let the phone companies service them? Then you can shop around. You can get the deal that you want and you don't have to like blow yourself up in everybody's contact list because you changed phone companies. Phone number belongs to you. and So our question would be like, well, why don't your financial assets, why does not your financial account belong to you? And then just different banks or financial institutions service it over your lifetime. But you know, it's your money, it's your account. Just let other people service it. And so, you know, if you change banks, you know, you shouldn't have to like go back to your employer and say, well, I got a new account number. It's like, no, the account number is the same. It's just a different bank is servicing it. And you see some of these concepts now when they talk about central bank money, every person having a bank account with a central bank, it doesn't mean there's not going to be a Citibank in Wells Fargo. They just service that account, but the account number belongs to the person. Who services it? Well, that, that, that's what bank you want to work with. But, you know, this concept of making the world, it's like, what is the sun? Does the sun revolve around the earth or does the earth revolve around the sun? And pretty much the world we're living in right now, we, it's, it's like the sun's revolving around the earth. And like, But, you know, we, we think the sun is the person and like, you know, the planets, i.e. the institutions should revolve around the person,
1: not the other way around. This seriously reimagines the nature of banks and the financial system.
0: And before we decide that this is a utopian pipe dream, they actually have done something similar to this in India.
1: Yeah, in our last episode, we talked about their digital ID and how divorcing the storage of money from the movement of money opened up opportunities for innovation, allowed for easier development and adoption of apps, and made banks think more about differentiating the value of their services.
0: And it means that you could put several different bank accounts and assets in the same wallet and have it completely usable anywhere you went. Instead of you bundling through your phone, your phone bundles accounts around you. Apps bundle accounts around you. That is the basic premise of the super app.
2: I don't know why there's not a wallet that just works with any bank balance. And if you have multiple banks, it's just got multiple banks in the app and and yet it's not like mint it's like no i can do things it's like i can actually get a card i could spend money from any of these banks um i could move money between the banks i could do whatever i want i could hold other currencies i could hold other assets like why why do i have all these walls between these different asset classes but if you, if you spend any time in china i mean like China alone, like WeChat Pay and Alipay, their volume of what they're doing within those apps is already 7x all of MasterCard and Visa combined in the United States. Yes, And people there are doing, you know, they're doing it all in the super app. They, they have like the other application, they're getting movie tickets, they're doing travel reservations, they're like um, doing banking, they're doing messaging, it, it's all just in the super app. Like they don't have a phone full of apps, they have WeChat and they just do it in WeChat. And so that level of integration clearly works with the population. It works at a really, really deep level of engagement. But, you know, we've got a lot of that innovation blocked here you know, by the big guys. And, and, I, and I mean both the big tech companies as well as the big financial companies.
1: And all of this brings up the concern about monopolies and how they block innovation. I mean, traditionally, if you are the only game in town, you make all the money and you have very little incentive to improve. But the big five have ambitions they haven't reached yet.
0: And you can see what they're building. Facebook just launched Facebook Pay in WhatsApp in Brazil. Apple just released innovations inside Apple Pay. Amazon and Microsoft are both advancing cloud services. They're competing with each other and innovating.
1: And Greg made a point that he doesn't want to demonize them either but that a much more open environment would provide much richer competition and fill niches that those companies might not. And it wouldn't hurt them.
2: I'm not like trying to demonize the banks or the big tech companies. And so, like, so I, I think they could do well under an open access regime, just like the phone companies have done fine, even though people own their phone numbers. But it does require you to stop, you know, basically obstructing access to data or to a user's right to choose what they want to do with their data. Like that's, and, and, and the banks and the big tech, they can put in all sorts of controls to like make sure that the, the access that's happening is, is happening correctly and whatnot. So you can build authentication controls and access controls, but you shouldn't be doing it in a way that is overlapped with anti-competitive and anti-innovation behavior. Um, And, and look at, I'm, not, I'm saying there's a, there's a role for regulation, there's a role for self-regulation as well.
0: Fundamentally, it does come back to who owns the data. Obviously, not an easy question as we've learned the last few minutes. While I can see the benefits of supporting innovative companies through increased supply of data, I personally feel like the consumer tends to get the short end of the stick. Consumers are the first to get screwed and the last to benefit. I think innovation should happen, but that governments and regulators need to make sure that consumers benefit and that they are truly in control of their data. I've yet to meet a business, big or small, that said, I wish we thought less about the customer. I guess they might say that internally, but I strongly believe that the long-term trends are pro-consumer.
1: Yes. And as an industry, we often think of regulation as limiting innovation, but in this case, Regulation might be needed to open up innovation. Uh, Greg doubts whether the US is really leading in any particular area of the industry.
2: Like Europe's at the forefront of things like PSD2 or privacy legislation. China's obviously at the forefront of building super apps and whatnot. If you had to pick some area where the US is at the forefront to deal with financial services in the world, I'm really struggling to say what that would be. Like, what area do we think in the US? is a leader in terms of financial it wasn't like chip and pin that like like you know that came from from europe and you know all the things to be done with 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 the super apps and whatnot are coming out of like coming out of asia and whatnot and there's no particular in my mind area of financial leadership except in the u.s like with exotic derivatives the thing that got us into the last financial crisis so um which were pretty innovative but they were you know as Warren Buffett said they were they were pretty pretty nuclear.
1: If he's right and we are allowing anti-competitive practices to snuff out innovation, we are allowing the rest of the world to get far ahead of us. The latest moves by the administration to ban H1B visas doesn't give me a lot of confidence that we are stemming that flow.
0: The H1B visa ban is the US shooting its own foot. The idea that we don't want to recruit the best and brightest from around the globe and to be on the forefront of innovation is absolutely mind boggling. It only adds to the nature of being anti-competition. It feels like the US is simply giving away any advantage it's had over the years.
1: It is turning our backs on what has traditionally been our strength.
2: I just want to say that I, I still like attempting to innovate in the United States. It has a very trusted financial system. So, so I, I'm not trying to undermine the trust. I just think that we've dialed it down so tightly that there's more of a risk from us not taking a risk on allowing and attempting innovation. So, you know, I just want to make clear I, I am pro-regulation, I'm pro-competition, I'm pro-user access, and I'm not anti-bank or anti-big tech. I just basically want to let all the energy that does exist here in the United States and has historically get a chance to, like, (laughs) flourish.
0: I just want to echo those sentiments. I am pro-competition, pro-user access, and pro-innovation.
1: We need to widen the scope of those participating in fintech innovation and guard against attempts to avoid competition. I mean, this includes diversity, which has been on everyone's mind. I am ending with a quote from the co founder of FinTech Beat, Christopher Brummer. If FinTech fails to innovate where it counts the most, it will be doomed to repeat the failures of the very system it seeks to replace. So that is it for this episode of The Money Pot. I want to thank our guest, Greg Kidd, CEO of Global ID, for walking me through this topic. And also, we want to thank our producer, Roland Bonnenhap.
0: And we also look forward to seeing everyone in Las Vegas for Money 2020 USA on October 25th through the 28th. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. And please write us with suggestions for the show at podcast at money2020.com.
1: And everyone stay safe and help others stay safe by wearing a mask.
0: This is Essential Essential Audio.